Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, founders, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Camille Terry, CEO and co-founder of Charger Help, an EV infrastructure solution that raised over $20 million in funding. Camille, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks so much for having me. Not a problem. I'm really excited for this conversation. I'd love to kick off with a little bit more about who you are and your background. Sure. Um, Camille, I'm from South Central Los Angeles, born to two Belizean parents. One parent was an entrepreneur. And funny enough, I said I would never be an entrepreneur until I discovered a really interesting problem in the EV charging space. So I am tackling um, reliability management for EV charging stations, and I've been doing it since January of 2020. How did you uncover this problem in the first place? And what was it about this problem that made you say, all right, I didn't want to be an entrepreneur, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to dive in. Yeah, so I used to work for a company that made software for EV charging stations. I was the 10th employee there and had the really cool opportunity to grow with that company. But funny, not even funny enough, just crazy. <laughs> My mom, you know, got diagnosed with cancer for like, I'm going to say the second or third time there was a reoccurrence. And so I ended up leaving that company and was actually just creating a curriculum on how to fix charging stations, like in my spare time, because that's what people should do in their spare time. Um, and started to, you know, talk to different organizations, linked up with an organization called the LA Clean Tech Incubator, started to train folks on how to fix charging stations, like in a volunteer type space. And then I was trying to get those folks hired at companies, but no one wanted to directly hire field service talent. And so then one of the companies was like, you know, what if you hired the field service folks and we hired you? And that's actually where it kind of like started. So I, I feel like I stumbled into entrepreneurship. And yeah, that's what I've been up to. Nice. That's very cool. And when it comes to the actual product or the, the solution that's being delivered, can you provide a bit more context on that? Sure. So Charging stations are computers. They are what we call IoT assets, Internet of Things. For fast chargers, there are many different what we call handshakes, uh, which essentially interoperability of software that has to like properly work in order for one charging event to happen. Because this technology is new and there's a lot of new players, what we find is that oftentimes those handshakes fail and the stations do not work. So much so there was actually a Wall Street Journal article that came out last week and others as well that they're seeing between 30 to 40 percent of the current infrastructure being inoperable. And a lot of the issues is because of these failures of handshakes. And so at Charger Health, what we believe is that, you know, you can get field service data, you can troubleshoot, but you can collect the steps that you did when you tried to fix a problem, you could bring that problem into a system alongside other data sets, and you could start uncovering like what's happening when the stations don't properly work. And then more importantly, you can start predicting when you think an issue is going to happen. And then if an issue does occur, you could actually solve it a lot faster. So we sell something called reliability as a service. Essentially, it's a fixed cost O&M. We utilize a lot of data in order to like 
solve problems really quickly and sometimes even prevent someone going on site. Uh, we've done about 18,000 field service interactions in the last couple of years and continue to build out our database and our predictive analytics work. Just to visualize this space, how many like roughly EV charging stations are there in the United States? I would say for charging manufacturers, there's, I would say core, probably about five or six large brands. And then three, that probably has most of the market. And then for like software providers, there's probably about three or so large software providers. And what ends up happening is a lot of people just white label existing software and existing hardware. But when you get down to it, it's a pretty fixed number of like hardware providers and software providers. But everyone for the software side, they all utilize a core protocol called Open ChargePoint Protocol. So that's mm -hmm. what kind of like makes everything a little bit easier to understand and to troubleshoot. Mm, that makes sense. And when you're looking at the stations that you serve, then are they, is this all B2B or are some of these consumers sometimes? So as of today, we're all B2B. We work primarily with utilities. We work with fleet operators, cities, and then larger kind of like resellers that are reselling to small businesses. So we are definitely in the B2B space. And is that like a new revenue line item that small businesses are embracing to say, OK, I can set up a few of these charging stations and it's a way to, to drive more revenue? Or what's like that business model for these charging stations? Sure. Yes. So for small businesses, we're seeing even multi-unit dwellings, workplaces. A lot of folks are seeing having charging stations as an amenity. And so they're investing in charging infrastructure. But then you do have a lot of businesses, actually larger scale businesses, where greenhouse gas reduction, things around climate are impacting how they think about their fleets. And so they're electrifying their fleets and then right haphazardly having to install charging infrastructure. Mm, got it. That makes a lot of sense. And can you tell us anything about traction, adoption, any numbers that you can share? Sure. I think I guess the biggest set of numbers is that, you know, year over year, we've seen um, very impressive growth. We are currently servicing stations across 17 states. That 18,000 field service interactions, that is the largest set of field service interactions that there are in the U U.S. Um, across multiple different manufacturers and network providers. And just really been proud of the team to see month over month revenue growth. What do you attribute to that success? I'm sure any founder that's listening in would want to come on and, and say that as well about their company, but a lot of companies aren't growing right now and a lot of companies are struggling. What do you think you've gotten right? It's timing. It's like the one thing you can't control. Like, <laughs> you know, when we first started the company, no one really cared about operations and maintenance of charging infrastructure, but we've seen this huge switch within our industry. And what, what we did influence though were laws. So we were able to, you know, co-sponsor a bill called the EV Charging Reliability Act in California. So that's giving the legislative body more insight and understanding of charging up time. We were also able to, you know, advocate for a guideline in the new federal funding for there to be 97% uptime. So I guess we have been doing a lot from a legislative perspective, but I think the one thing that, you know, has worked out really well for us is timing. Did you have to hire a lobbyist or were you doing that yourself when it comes to you know, influencing the laws and the bills that were passed? Yeah, it's a great question. So my first hire actually was government relations. 
And then we joined two core associations that already had lobbyists. And so then that way we didn't have to have a direct expense of a lobbyist. There are two states that we ended up hiring lobbyists, but that was later on. But our initial strategy was to work alongside the industry that aligned with our same values and then utilize, you know, those larger organizations to help, you know, lobby on our behalf. I spoke with the founder earlier today, actually, and they were telling me that their first hire was a general counsel and their investors are like, are you crazy? That's your first hire. So when you told investors or when you were having conversations with investors and told them that the first hire was going to be government relations, did they think you were crazy or did it make sense given the business that you're in? They say either you're really smart or really dumb. I guess we'll see. <laughs> and we've passed like we've passed one bill or another bill that's gonna get signed by the governor. Like and we did really well. And so they, you know, they're proud that I made that decision. But no, they were definitely on the fence, like, what the heck are you doing? But <laughs> in climate is different. And that's why I try to t- explain to folks like in climate, you have to you will get squashed by laws in climate tech. So like you, you have to be prepared for that. Mm, that makes sense. Yeah. I feel like there's probably a lot of stories of startups that just get crushed, right? Or just to get killed by regulation. Yes, absolutely. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now back to today's episode. Now let's talk a little bit about messaging and positioning. So how has your messaging and positioning evolved since you launched the company? It's interesting because we've always had to be education first, right? Because a lot of folks are like, what charging stations break? And then they were like, well, isn't it an electrical problem? So a lot of what we've had to do is like, you know, utilize our platform to bring data to the industry so folks can better understand the problem and then better understand our solution. So that's been the biggest, you know, messaging. I think how it's evolved is the nuances that we can talk about. You know, now we can talk more about like handshake failures interoperability issues. But in the beginning, we had to spend a lot of time showing the industry that the stations didn't work. But now that's picked up and there's more articles about it, more people talking about it. And so now, you know, our next kind of like messaging strategy is like, okay, now that you know that it doesn't work, here are the complexities. And then two, once again, here's how we can, you know, be helpers in solving it. Now, another founder described it to me is they spent the first few years of the company really trying to create demand and educate the market about the problem and aggravate that problem so that they would want to solve it. And then the next phase for them was about capturing that demand. And when they were trying to capture that demand, what they found was there was a lot more competition all of a sudden, largely because of their work. Uh, they were you know, competing with companies to capture demand. Is that something you've experienced as well? Was this kind of this lonely journey at first where there was no one really talking about this problem and now there's more people talking about it? Or is it really still just you talking about this problem and you capturing that demand? So there's now more people talking about it, but they're talking about it how we were talking about it a year ago, right? And so now we're in this new lonely space where we're explaining the nuances of it because we have the largest data set to explain it. So it's interesting because, yeah, like people talk about it more. There's way more people that say they can fix chargers. But then a lot of those folks don't understand like what it takes. And then the industry is still catching up to understanding what it takes. Right. 
So it's interesting. The thing is that I guess that makes it still a compelling problem to solve is because there's so much government funding in this space. And most importantly, there's so much private sector funding from car OEMs who've made commitments, you know, to electricity and electrification. So it still makes it a compelling, you know, problem to solve. But it, it is funny that we just go from, you know, another set of education. Yeah, I feel like it never ends, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Now, I saw that you were also mentioned in a White House press release celebrating, I believe it was just the progress or the network being built for EV chargers in America. What was that like being featured in that? And and what impact did it have on the company? Yeah, so the White House press release was actually because we partner with the organization called SAE International. Mm -hmm. And that organization, you know, they're the ones that help like the automotive industry and also the airline industry with a lot of standards. And so they actually are putting together the first ever EVSC technician certification program. So prior to our company starting, there was no job title called EVSC technician. Uh, we actually created that job title with the Department of Labor. And then we needed an organization to essentially say, you know, stamp of approval of oh, this person knows how to fix a charging station. And so We had created a curriculum on our own, but then SAE took our curriculum and then worked with some of the other industry folks to add on to it to now create this body of knowledge that was released. And now in Q1, people can go and sit for a test to become a certified EBSC technician. And so for us to get recognized for that work was huge because we really needed to create a workforce, you know, in our industry. We're a technology company. We're not a service company. We had to hire field service technicians and train them on their own because that labor force did not exist, right? And so it's really cool stepping into next year where there will now be certified folks that can do this work, right? And so that way we can further move into being a full technology company and not having so much service, physical service that we're responsible for. Mm, That makes a lot of sense. Now, did you feel like you had product market fit right away when you were first launching in 2020? Or or did it take some time for you to really feel that way? I mean, I feel like it took some time. I think we're just at the cusp of it right now, like strong product market fit. I think, you know, in the beginning, the customers that were experiencing the most pain understood like our product and it made sense to them. But a lot of folks didn't really, wasn't experiencing tremendous pain yet, right? Because they didn't have enough stations deployed Or if the station broke, they really weren't really responsible. But now with the new legislation coming into play, it's forcing people to deal with this, which we should have been dealing with it because it's such a waste of funding to deploy assets. And, you know, 30 to 40 percent of them don't work like that's crazy. You know, so I think we're we're at the really cusp of it right now for more of a mass space. But people who've had charging infrastructure, I feel as though we we fit very well for them. As I mentioned there in the intro, you've raised over 20 million to date. What have you learned about fundraising throughout this journey? That you have to have customers. I mean, I think the thing that's crazy to me is like a lot of folks, they raise so much capital and then they have no revenue or they don't have a strong, you know, understanding of like their customer. And I think for us, which has been good, is that when we've gone out to fundraise, we've always had, you know, solid traction, right? 
we've always been able to show what exactly we needed the funding to to hit the next growth phase. And on those in-between, yeah, we've done what, three rounds? On those in-between rounds, we were able to show, you know, that we that we hit the milestones that we set off before. So it's really like, one, make sure you have customers, make sure people are paying you, <laughs> that you show you have traction, and then being like super, super clear on like, if you get a new inflection of capital, what will that mean? What will those milestones be? And then when you hit those things and you do have to go out again, you can point to and say, hey, you gave me X, I did this, you know, and then that allows people to, you know, trust you. And of course, nothing is going to be perfect. It's all very hard. But that's what I really just try to strive for is making sure I have customers and that we're hitting our, our milestones before we ever go out to fundraise. Are you still involved in every deal that closes or have you managed to transition out of founder-led sales? I am out of founder-led sales. It's really sad because, you know, I really like talking to customers. And so sometimes, you know, I ask if I can be included because I like to talk about <laughs> <some> customers. <laughs> I've heard founders say something very similar and they've also said that it's just really hard. And, and that's why I wanted to ask about that is, you know, they've told me that it's just extremely difficult when you make that transition out of sales. Was that difficult for you or was that easy to navigate? You know, it was easy because like my SVP of sales is really, really smart and a lot smarter than me. And so, you know, I felt very comfortable having her own that space. So yeah, that part was easy for me. It's just, yeah, I just try to stay close to our product and stay close to the customers just so you know, one, you always want to make sure that the thing that you were selling in the beginning is still the thing that you're selling now that you have more people. And then two, it's just helpful to hear, you know, how we're still solving a really big problem for people in the industry. Amazing. Now, final question for you. Let's zoom out three to five years into the future. What's the big picture vision that you're building here? Yeah, at Charger Hall, what we're really trying to build, actually, I'll explain the, the bigger problem, which is fascinating. So today... If you drive an electric vehicle and you need to go to a charging station, you typically use your your electric vehicle will tell you what's the nearest available charging station. What we see time and time again is because that vehicle is relying on station data and the station data is typically saying, oh, I'm available. But when that driver gets to that station, the station is actually broken. And so we see that the information that comes off the charging station is not right. And that has all to do with like what we were talking about earlier, you know, like handshakes and discrepancies in how the station is actually understanding itself. And so we believe that if we get enough data that we can be a verification system for those car OEMs. And even as the federal government starts to roll out more regulation on uptime, right, we can verify, oh, that station actually is working, right? And so that's where we see ourselves really within the next year or two where we actually have a strategic round open right now to bring forth some of our product roadmap. But that's one of the newest features that we're building towards is to have a verification tool for the charging infrastructure, which then as you have more smart technology, smart cities, and you have more softwares interacting with the built environment, you can utilize the same type of framework to understand is this, you know, IoT asset, is it behaving as intended? So yeah, that's what we're working towards right now. Amazing. Well, I love the vision. I, I love everything that you're building. And I, I really enjoyed this conversation. I know it's going to be a real hit with our audience. Before we wrap here, if there's any founders that are listening in, they're inspired by your journey, and they just want to follow along as you continue to build and execute, where should they go? Oh, yeah. I am 
unofficial LinkedIn influencer. Huh? So you can find me on LinkedIn. I like to share a lot of what we've been up to on, on my LinkedIn. Amazing. We'll make sure to link to that in the show notes. Really appreciate you taking the time. Again, this is a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. All right. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 